I think we're about ready to start. <clears throat> so welcome back, everyone. Um, maybe we could begin with any leftover questions, and then we'll go on to building and um, rebuilding trust specifically. Okay. Yeah, I just have a question. Um, you've been talking about uh, relationships with in a couple settings. Um, and I'm curious about people you come across to, in your life, just an acquaintance that you trust, and all of a sudden they use that trust to um, come back at you and against you, I guess you could say, in a uh, detrimental type of way. And I'm just wondering how to respond on something like that. Okay. Thanks for bringing that up because... I think everybody can relate to it. So, um, Kevin will need another one of these. Uh... Oh, and before I forget, this day will be on Dharma Seed soon. It's a free. It's dharmaseed.org. Yeah, and you'll be able to access our workshop. Or is there. Okay, so we'll just, let's take this one off altogether. Okay, thank you. Also, uh, someone reminded me to mention I'll, I'll be back here in the fall. I'll be at Esalen in June, middle of June. Um, so, First of all, it's important to recognize the breakdown in trust as an abandonment. And that it will bring up the archaic, the ancient feelings of abandonment that you had way back in early life. So an experience of being, of having the trust broken either by a friend or in a relationship, is a triggering event. It would be rare that the breakdown in trust is entirely new. It will be reminiscent of many other betrayals and disappointments along the way, which have been standing at your door like courtiers waiting to get the king's ear or queen. And they keep hanging around, but the royal ones are too busy to hear their suit. So along comes somebody who hurts you in this deep way of breaking the trust, which is one of the most painful of all the human experiences, and so shocking. In itself, it's a trauma, Greek word for wound. It will be triggering earlier examples of abandonment and breaking of trust. 
And so it's going to be very important when you present your feelings of grief and disappointment to the other person to acknowledge that there's a layer in your feeling that you take responsibility for that comes from the past. I'm not just feeling how you are hurting me now. With it are all the hurts that never got their full hearing. So I want to acknowledge that part of the pain which I take care of and I also am acknowledging how what has happened between us hurts so much. So an adult will make that distinction. So it triggered something from earlier times and it's real now. But the only thing you bring to the other is what's real now. This goes into your own therapeutic work. And the reason that abandonment is the strongest of all the human fears is because we are social beings. And so the possibility of being excluded from the pack is the equivalent of death. I can only survive within the group. We have that deeply imprinted in us as mammals. So when somebody excludes us, when we feel abandoned, even in a one-to-one relationship, it is bringing up even those archetypal fears. That's why it hits us so hard. It's not as if this one little person had this much power. He or she is doing something that goes all the way back to caveman times. And all the little stored imprints of fears and terrors are being um, cattle prodded into consciousness, all triggered by this original event. And this would be true of anything that happens in a relationship. So uh, we're always asking ourselves, Which part of it is from what's real now and which part of it belongs to earlier stuff? And it's two different kinds of work. So this work will be the grieving and letting go of the past and doing trauma work if necessary. This part will be immediate confrontation of the situation, which we'll now be talking about. How do you do this? But you can see that if you uh, jam them all together and put everything on the partner, it's the equivalent of trying to use him or her 
to do some of what is your own work. Everybody follow? So in what the uh, questioner brought up, it's uh, a terrible loss, a feeling of abandonment, and all of this, whenever you see the word loss, you know that it has something to, it's a, it's a, it would be a healthy trigger if it moves you directly into how do I grieve and let go? As opposed to how do I blame or retaliate? Are there other questions about this part of it? of what you're talking about, more collective sense. What do you see the challenges now with um, what's going on in the world to, like, the macro-micro scale? So what are the challenges in people trusting one another with kind of larger world obstacles? Does that make sense? I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, the, uh, the way we would trust each other is by evidence that others are trustworthy. We, we can't presume trustworthiness. We know how to do this because this is what we did as infants. We checked out the scene. We started presenting our needs and we noticed, oh yeah, they come right away. They make us, or they make us wait, or they don't hear us at all. Or when they do come, they don't know how to respond. We figured all that out. And if the evidence was they come right away and they fulfill the need right away, that's the origin of trust. Oh, I'm in that kind of a world. We can't say I have that kind of parent. We can only say I live in that kind of world. So unfortunately... We take what happened in early life and we apply it for the rest of our lives to all people when really it was only about those two little people, our own actual parents. But we can't make that distinction in infancy and early life. We just think, oh, this is the kind of world it is here. They respond or they don't respond. They do it in a timely way, or they don't do it in a timely way. They respond inadequately or adequately. This is where you're getting your trust imprint. And ever after, you would be carrying that with you. If what you're carrying is such a low-level capacity, um, then it's going to be hard to trust later. In fact, that's the origin of my book. Um, I think I say this in the introduction. I can still picture myself. I was working with a couple, and the man had been unfaithful. And he was genuinely apologizing. And each week we were going more and more deeply into the whole issue of his infidelity, and he had definitely stopped doing what he was doing. It was um, something that was 
brief, but nonetheless impactful. And I kept wondering why the partner found it so hard to accept that he really was genuinely repentant and he really was genuinely wanting to start over. I can still picture myself walking from where I see clients in the living room. I was walking toward the kitchen and I stopped short in the middle of the hallway and I said, oh, it's about the capacity to trust. Does the partner have the capacity to trust at all, no matter what he says? That opened up a whole new way of looking at it for me. Then I thought to myself, so everyone must have a different capacity for trust. Some have come out of childhood with the full capacity, some with none, and everybody else, the rest of us, somewhere in between. It it even connects directly to the main fears. So the two fears in relationship, I fear abandonment, you may go away, or I fear engulfment, you may get too close and smother me. Even both of these fears are really about trust. Can I trust that you'll stay? Can I trust that you won't smother me? So all of this would be part of what you would say when you were confronting somebody's infidelity. You would say, I realize that my own capacity to trust is very much at sixes and sevens. It's very tenuous, very tentative. So I don't want to hold that against you. I have to acknowledge that no matter what you may say, it's still going to be hard for me to trust you again because I come in with a lower capacity to trust than fits the bill for a relationship in which things will really get worked out. Very fascinating, isn't it? So keep all that in mind. Uh, Okay, so let's go to our other... Yeah. David, you described a situation where two people in a relationship colluded to avoid grief. And what I want to know is what does that look like? How does that happen? Other than the obvious mutual addiction to alcohol, drugs, or sex, what are are the subtle ways that two individuals can collude to avoid grief? Keep everything at a very superficial level. Never go into any of the deep feelings. Put all the concentration on the children. Be co-parents instead of actual partners. Put all the concentration on one of your addictions so that everybody's thinking about your alcohol use and nobody's ever looking at the real issues. Oh, we have a thousand ways to make sure that the depth never happens. Why would we be avoiding it? I guess it would be that 
it puts you on the spot for going deeper, and you may not be ready to go there. It might be scary. Scary to go deeper. I've noticed occasionally, and I was even looking up, um, I was online once I was on Amazon, and I was taking a look at some of the, you know, reader comments on my books. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> this person said something that I noticed even sometimes giving classes. He said, there are too many quotes from Shakespeare. And he, he kind of said it in an angry way. <laughs> and I also noticed occasionally in talks, um, someone will say later, there are too many quotes from Shakespeare. And I'm thinking, how could there be too many quotes? <laughs> <laughs> but it's, I think it's like to get angry that you won't understand what them. You won't understand the quotes, even though I always explain them. But I think some people get a little angry, reminds you of when you were in high school, maybe the teacher made fun of you because you couldn't understand poetry. And so um, those kind of quotes remind you, make you feel like I'm not so smart. Why don't I understand it? Anyway, that's neither here nor there. But uh, anyway, you had a question. Okay, um, following the topic of abandonment, um, I had a quick question. Um, I grew up uh, being abandoned and in an abusive household, and so I feel like as opposed to not trusting people, I overly trust. And so then when they do show me signs of like that they can't be trusted or they do like one little thing that in their eyes might be minute, but to me it's like so big, I like... It, I just can't stand it. So then it's like, and then I may not blame them, but then I blame myself and like put the blame back on me and like, why did I trust again? And so it's very conflicting. Okay, well, thank you for being so vulnerable to bring that up. And let me just uh, respond in a simple way. So you could think of trust as on a spectrum. And I find this particular spectrum very helpful in a variety of ways, so I will share it. So on one end of the spectrum is the experience of too little. On the other end is too much. And I'll give examples. And in the middle is just right. The obvious example is that we learned in childhood is Goldilocks. One porridge was too cold, the other was too hot, the other was just right. So she she shows us the three options. And then, of course, we have everything in between. So if your original capacity for just right trusting 
just right trusting is the original caregivers responded in a good enough way most of the time. If that happened to you, you have a just right capacity. If they didn't respond and what you received was too little, you could deny that there was too little, which would be the equivalent of denying the grief that goes with the experience of too little. And in which case, you would keep trying to get more from those who only give less. That's called codependency. Or you could go to the trusting too much, which also is about not having to feel the grief of how you did not get your needs met. And now what you're doing is expecting more where there's only less. So this one keeps trying to get more, and this one expects more. All expectations go back to some disappeared, disregarded grief. Whereas the person who comes from the just right capacity will base his or her future voyages onto the shaky seas of trust on evidence. C is calm, I can trust it. C is choppy, wait an hour or two. That's how this per- what this person sounds like. This one sounds like doesn't matter if it's trust it doesn't matter if it's choppy. I know it'll clear up on its own, or I expect it to clear up. Both of these are operating on the basis of fantasy. Whereas this one's operating on the basis of reality. I also use this just as an aside. When trying to discern, like to make a decision, sit down with a piece of paper, draw your spectrum, put too little, too much, just right, and then fill in and see what you come up with. What would this project look like if it gave me too little, What would it look like if it gave too much? What would it look like just right? Really helps you with decision making also. What do I really want from this relationship? What would it look like to want too little? Well, I don't have to um, ask for a commitment. What would it look like to ask for too much? 
I want a total commitment and total uh, presence every minute of the day. That's too much to ask from other humans. What would it sound like if it was just right? Well, we're together most of the time and we have good enough most of the time. And occasionally we have a weekend in which we do our little fun thing of being with each other every single minute from Friday night to Sunday night. Waiting on each other, taking care of all our needs. Anybody, either one can ask for anything, the other will say yes. That would be a fun thing to do. (laughs) But it's definitely a weekend style. Okay, other questions about this? Oh, yeah. I have a question going back to the concept about indifference. And um, I, I have heard indifference conceptualized in the idea that the opposite of love is not hate, but it's indifference. And mm-hmm. it felt like a little bit of a victory to get to that place about a person who was particularly toxic in my life. But it sounds like you think there's further healing to do beyond indifference. Is that true even when a person is is truly toxic? You mean when the other is acting in a toxic way, is it up to you to become indifferent toward it? Is that what you mean? Um, Oh, let's keep this because... um, Well, in, in the example of a true wounding... You know, yeah. um, someone who has acted in a way that's, that's truly egregiously wrong, and there's no hope for reconciliation um, with that person. The person isn't, um, isn't uh, sorry. Um, and, um, or I think uh, it's not my personal experience, but a, a child who was abused, you know, where there, there's truly no hope for resurrecting that relationship. So your question would be? It, it has to do with how you responded to the woman earlier who asked about indifference. Um, it sounds like you don't believe that indifference is um, a healthy ending point, that there's more work to be done, or can you talk a little bit more about um, that? As I said, I felt like it was sort of like, yay, I finally arrived to this place where I'm not reacting um, to this person um, any longer. Um, good, I'm glad you're helping us clarify because indifferent has a kind of negative connotation. But the, your other phrase, non-reactive, makes a lot more sense. Now, it's impossible to be non-reactive in an intimate relationship. The very nature of the commitment is a statement implicit in the original connection that says, you matter to me, so the things you do impact me. Now, if they impact you too much so they destroy your serenity, that's one option which you would not like. But if they impact you so little that 
you just uh, have become indifferent to the other, then the energy has gone out of the relationship. So what we would want is the just right. You do what you do does have an impact, but somehow I'm still maintaining my own boundaries and serenity, and I'm still staying in contact with you, not becoming indifferent. So that would be a good example in which this spectrum model helps us. Everything eventually, and this is just an aside, Everything eventually, no matter what the impacts, and I'll give an example, goes to information. So here we are in 19, I guess it was 62, President Kennedy assassinated. Big impact that we all felt. Very scary, very horrifying, very sad, lots of grief, lots of fear, big. Now, 2018, the event has become information, historical information. Still, Sorry that it happened, but not sad or grieving. Grieving up here, not grieving here. What happened to the event? It folded itself through all the work we did in between into matter-of-factness. So something like that can happen with what occurred to us in childhood. If it was a big trauma, then the impact stays just as heavily impactful for a lifetime until we work with somebody with real skill on how to free ourselves from our trauma. But some of the things that our parents did now has just become information. I said, to give a simple example. I, we're, we're, our, we're Italian in our family. And of, of, as you know, we have wonderful cuisine. <laughs> and my mother was home all morning. When we came home from, for lunch... It was always the same. One can of Campbell's soup with one can of water added. That was the lunch. And I said to my brother in adult life, gee, mommy was kind of lazy, wasn't she? She just gave us a Campbell's soup. She had all morning. She could have made eggplants. She could have made, you know... (laughs) Spaghetti and meatballs, you know, all the things that we like and know how to make. But she didn't. It's all, it was always the same. Just the soup. Well, that doesn't bring up any pain. It's just, it's just information. 
So that would be an example of just information. Whereas if what had happened was some horrible abuse, then the impacts would be so strong, it could never wind up in information. Everybody get the idea? So you wouldn't be indifferent here, but you hold it differently. Oh yeah, too bad she was like that. But the too bad isn't creating any big reactions of resentment. I mentioned it just as another part of the story. I mentioned this same thing to my sister, who always defends my my mother. She said, all the mothers were making Campbell's soup, not just ours. (laughs) So anyway, you can't fight City Hall. Um, So I'm wondering if you can comment on the loss of trust not being able to be localized to a single person, being like a more general feeling, loss of trust in the government, loss of trust in the future, you know. Yeah. So that would be the equivalent of despair. Despair is actually a loss of trust. So remember the three... uh, when the um, John Bowlby, who is the originator of the attachment theory, and back in the 40s, he was hired by the World Health Organization to figure out why the little uh, infant orphans were dying at a higher rate than the ordinary population. And they were being warehoused in these big orphanages with a very minimal staff. So he went, he observed the situation, and he came up with an answer. This was his answer. He said, these babies are going through three phases. They know they have needs, and they know the needs are supposed to be fulfilled but the nurses only have time to change them and feed them. Feed them is stick the bottle in their mouth and then go on to the next crib. So the first thing they do to try to get their needs met is they reach out and that's based on trust. That when you reach out, and smile, and goo-goo, and, and look fetching, which they know how to do, that the, the world will respond. When they see that the reaching out makes no difference, they start to lose their trust. This leads them to rage, So they start screaming, throw the bottle out of the crib, stiffen up, make it difficult for the nurse to change them. And this rage is the ebbing 
of their trust in humanity because the nurse is their only connection to humanity. Of course, she's not doing these things purposely, but the baby doesn't understand this. When they see that the rage doesn't work either, they go to the third and final stage, which is despair. They simply lie there indifferently. They don't cry. They don't reach out. They have given up the reaching out. They have given up the rage and protests. They have given up completely. And they have totally lost their trust. He didn't, he didn't say this, but now we know that the, that the ones who survive this, they will be walking time bombs in the society. But many of these died. And so he explained, they're dying because some of them, when they get to this third phase, lack the inner resources to survive it. And the ones who will survive it, they'll be the ones who have big sociopathic issues. So anyway, the lack of trust, you want to trace it, where we're asked the question, you want to trace it and see if this is part of what happened to you. Because in a way, this happened to many of us. And it certainly happens in relationships. And one of the things I always look for when I am working with a couple, I try to notice which of the two is at which of the three. Like one may still be reaching out, the other one's down here. One may be here, the other one's here. Could be both are up here. It isn't working and we need help. That would be the healthiest. Could be both are here. We're just trying to get back at each other. So there my work is cut out for me. (laughs) Or it could be if if one or both are here, there's nothing anybody could do. Just be time to wrap it up, move on. Despair in Latin means no hope. So that would be a sad stage to get to. Yeah. Does the capacity to trust and to be trustworthy can only happen when we have a spiritual awakening? Or what about those who do not have any spiritual practice or do believe in a higher power? And what if we find ourselves in relationship with one of the partners has a spiritual practice and the other one doesn't? Well, one of my proposals in the How to Be Adults in Relationships is that the relationship works best when people have a spiritual practice. 
because your compass can't work unless it points to the north. Only then do you know where you are and how to go where you want to go. And north is higher power, which could be nature itself or the universe. It doesn't have to be God. <clears throat> so yes, it helps a lot if you can... Uh, if you can um, come from a spiritual place. Yeah? Can I ask you to turn to the back to one page, please? Sure. The one before this one? No, that one. Um, I'd like to respectfully disagree with your comment that people or infants who reach the despair stage become sociopaths. Okay. I was severely abused by both parents throughout my childhood, infancy and childhood. Uh, the medical term for this is failure to thrive. I went through extensive therapy in college, graduate school, and then went on to medical school and became a pediatrician. Okay. And most definitely not a sociopath. Good for you. Well, thank you. That helps. I guess what I should say is you're, it could happen, but it doesn't necessarily happen. You could become a great saint. All right, thank you for reminding me of that. Okay, so now let's look at the other part of this, which is, uh, now I'm on page um, 131. So now we're on the topic of when the trust is broken and we're trying to rebuild. Of course, rebuild means it was there to begin with. And somehow it ebbed away or was suddenly shockingly taken away. And uh, I start again with, you know, connecting it to the past. So you would say something like, I'm feeling this betrayal and I realize it's a trigger reaction from the past. So a big um, dimension of what I'm feeling is past connected instead of present connected. And that would be particularly true if your statement were, I feel hurt and scared as I see my life falling apart because of your infidelity. Infidelity being not just sexual, but any break in the agreement that each person be trustworthy. <clears throat> and I let myself remember my story from childhood and from other relationships. I simultaneously address what's happening now and what happened in the past. So I'm doing double duty as I let myself feel this hurt. Now, what is the kind of work that's done by the partner who broke the trust? Let's start with him or her. So we begin the same way as we did before. You would have to have some kind of admission 
I admit not only the, what I did, not only the content, but what I was up to when I went this way. That I, I had already started to disengage, but instead of telling you I was disengaging and opening up a big can of worms, I just looked elsewhere to get my needs met. Or I turned in a different direction because I had given up despair on getting what I needed from you. Or I turned in a different direction because adrenaline took over and I was more attracted to the excitement of the new experience than I was in making things work between us. So you have to not only admit the uh, experience of the breakdown, but also the context in which it happened. This is going to be a big admission. Secondly, is the same as before. I'm showing sorrow, also called contrition. I'm showing sorrow about the pain you're feeling, including compassion for your pain and acceptance of your anger with no defense. I'm not trying to defend my position. I'm not saying, well, you weren't there for me, so therefore I did this. It's going to be defenseless all the way along. Then you, as before, figure out some form of amends that you both agree to. What can I do to make up for this, even though you can't really make up for it, but what can I do to show good faith that I really want this to work, that I want to rebuild, not fall apart? And then finally, this one's different from the other that we talked about earlier. I intend to stay with you as both of us work through a restructuring. So I'm going to stay with you in your grief and in the restructuring. I saw an interesting example of this in a movie. Don't remember the name. Young couple, engaged, man, thief fellow had sex with another woman. The fiancé found out about it. They were living together under the same roof. 
He comes home, the door's locked. She says, get out, stay out. This is, you know, she felt very bad. You were very wrong. She was very angry and enraged. This is what he did. He sat on the porch silently. He sat there for the rest of the day. He sat there all night. He sat there till the next morning. She came out of the house, saw him sitting there. She didn't say anything. She went to work. When she came home, he was still sitting. She didn't say a word. She went in the house. She did her dinner preparations. Later that night, front door opens. She throws a blanket out, shuts the door. <laughs> and it went on like this. He, he would not move. He stayed right there. He didn't say a word. He says, I know you can't forgive me, but I want to show that I don't want this to end. Then, you know, then she throws a pillow out and it goes on till gradually she lets him back in. Everybody follow? I thought, oh, okay, he's showing that he's sorry about what he did. He's not hiding it. And he's looking for some way to make amends, but he's definitely staying with. So she could build up a little more trust when she noticed what he was up to. I thought it made a lot of sense. So with this is, I'm on page 133. You commit yourself to end the infidelity right away, obviously, and remain monogamous for the future. You go to therapy as needed. And then if the issue is not limited to, now we're in another whole topic. If the incidence of infidelity is not a discrete, separate experience, but part of a sex addiction, now we have a whole different way of working. Now you have to commit yourself to a 12-step program. Now you're going to work on your addiction as your responsibility. Your partner can join you in the program. So I'll just add here 12-step if addiction. So one of them finds out that the other one is also involved in addiction in addictive sex, including pornography online, uh, that adds another layer to the whole thing. But without it being addiction, it would be these four. Admit, sorrow, amends, stay with So that's the work of the person who broke the trust.
Then after the break, we'll talk about the person who was offended, one who was betrayed. But first, any questions about this part? Uh, do you want to go into this uh, microphone over here? No, no, you, you're, you're right here on this. He's, yeah. So you want me to bring up the question from earlier this morning about how to... Sure, whatever. Passion, yeah. What are the most effective ways of doing the intervening to, to help this person see, to be able to, to have the capacity to hear what the offense has been that's broken the trust so that the conditions are laid that they can admit? You'd have to sh- sh- express very clearly your own sorrow and grief so that the other person sees how seriously it has impacted you. You'd have to let the other person... And in the example from the film, she simply showed the anger. She didn't show the sadness, but she just felt the anger at that particular time. That's fine. But she also noticed he's still sitting there. That was important. We in the audience felt it was important too. And, f- and for, those, for those who respond to confrontation with bigger and louder protest, how, such as with folks who go to 12-step programs, um, what, what intervention techniques do you recommend for that as just a layperson? You mean like an intervention for if someone needs the program? Right, but not necessarily drug, but acting out behavior, blaming, um, verbal, all the kinds of things that tend to be connected with that. You'd still have to have some kind of intervention with other family members or friends coming in to get it across to the one in denial that, you know, this is what you're up to here and we see it and we're sorry that it's happening because we love you. And we need you to get the help that's crucial to your survival. Okay, and if life threat isn't involved, because I don't want to make it sound like it's a drug intervention, it's, I'm talking about maybe dynamics that females are more acquainted with being on the receiving end of. of um, how do I say this? Just maybe... Verbally abusive behavior, that kinds of thing. Um, where if you can, if somebody is compassionately witnessing and thinking, wow, so-and-so has a trauma history, maybe this has been their coping mechanism since childhood, like your stage two for the orphans, but that's, that's how they deal with being disappointed with their needs not being met. How do you, again, create, compassionately create the conditions where someone is willing to hear, not your bad but what you're doing is not helpful, and if you don't learn different ways, people need to set boundaries to be away from that behavior. So this is the question I had earlier. Yes, that's a good question. And in working with couples with that very issue, I've always referred the one who has the problem to a trauma expert. And the relationship is not going to work, both I and the 
let's say, wife, a relationship are saying, the relationship can't work until you get this kind of specialized help because here you are taking out on me what's something, what is actually something incomplete and unhealed in yourself is the equivalent of being disabled to be in a relationship at all. If the trauma was so harmful that it now gets in the way of your being able to stay in a relationship and provide safety and security, if you can no longer do that, then the only way to stay lovingly is to get the help that you need, which can now can only become can only come from a the type of counselor who has that special training, which not all of us have. Okay, let's have two last questions. Yeah. If a relationship is in the point where it's no longer tenable, but it actually ends with some sort of infidelity or breach in the agreements between the partners, how could a situation like that leave both people empowered and effectively able to deal with all the emotions that that brings up? You mean um, it might be too difficult to feel all the emotions that will arise? Yes. Well, you'd have to keep practicing all along (laughs) by bringing up whatever feelings came up on a daily basis. So you'd be used to expressing the feelings all throughout the relationship. And then when the new big thing happens, you're right in there with knowing how to express it. Is that what you mean? No. Tell me. What I'm referring to is is a relationship which was more like... um, not a love relationship, but like more coworkers, colleagues. Oh, okay. And there's there's a breach, and it's coming at the end of the the relationship. It's no longer tenable. It's like moving to another. It's been untenable all along. Yeah, right. And now and at it the hasn't end, been addressed. And now and now it has, but um, not. <laughs> the space isn't there to really dive into deeply all of the issues involved, but I want to leave the other person able to do that. You would have to let it go as a transaction between the two of you, and you would have to work on it on whatever's left over in you, in your own therapy. Does that make sense? And that would be true at the end of an intimate relationship also. At a certain point, there's no transaction left. Transaction, two people, there is no transaction left. Now, it's, now you're standing there with what's left over, and it's only yours. So now you work with it. I mean, that's the nature of divorce. We have ended the transaction. Now we're each out there with the leftover wounds and each of us works on them in his or her own way.
no longer trying to get some of it from the partner. If they could still help you, you wouldn't be getting divorced. So that's another move into adult responsibility. Okay, let's have one last question. Uh, My question has to do with when there is addiction. Um, In my experience, the person's need to work with their addiction supersedes their ability to be present to work on the relationship. What do you do in that situation? The addiction, that's a good point. And I always say this to my interns. Addiction is always first. So if someone comes in who's an alcoholic and I want to work in my relationship, my answer is no, I can't do that. First, we have to work on the addiction. Clear that up. Only then can you look at relationship issues because they can't be worked with while you're still escaping so much into the addictive process. So you'd always want to make that the first step, literally, first of the 12 steps. And you're fooling yourself if you think, oh, I can work on my relationship. The alcohol or drugs are separate. It isn't really like that. Because the nature of addiction is it takes up big space in your mind. A lot of the room in your psyche has now been rented out by whatever your addiction is about. And in order to work on things in relationship, you have to clear the room so that you can put all the energy into the relationship issue. Make sense? Okay, let's take a short break and then we will continue.
Yeah. Oh. Yes. I'll give you a card. Uh, commitments to uh, integrity and loving kindness. Welcome back, everyone. Um, During the break, someone reminded me that my list on page 76 of what it would take to have a healthy partner are way over the top. (laughs) And (laughs) kind of a lot to ask. So I guess you have to take it with a grain of salt. So just get as close to this as you can within one standard deviation. Um, Okay, and were there other leftover questions before we go on to the work of the person who was betrayed? Oh, also during the break, someone reminded me of what I put here on the easel flip chart that once you make the commitment to 
do things differently, I will no longer have affairs. I will end the affair I'm in. With it is I also commit myself to be much more aware of all the tricky little ways that I still want to go there, such as flirting or doing things that have a sexual connotation, even though you may not actually do something sexually in a behavioral way. So if you really mean business, then you would also want to be on high alert. And you could ask the other person to point out if he or she notices you're going there. Not do it for you, not be your policeman, but certainly help you see if you are headed in that direction. But ultimately, it's up to you. Or another way of saying it is, you know that you're really wanting to make a change when you not only commit yourself to making a change, but go on the lookout, carefully scanning all your behavior to see the little secret ways in which you are still caught up in this untrustworthy style that is our topic. Okay, other questions? So now let's look at, well, what about the person who was betrayed? Uh, Kevin? Or somebody? I'm on my last page. Um, Could you let someone know that? Yeah. Okay. So I'll just use this. So obviously the first step is grief. And this will include, I'm sad about this. I'm angry. Oh, okay. Doesn't really show up well? Okay. And I'm afraid now as to what you'll do next. So it obviously starts with grief. And this is also what makes it so difficult because, of course, this is your own personal work and it's hard for the other person to help you with it. You would only have to be present as you go through it and extremely patient for how long it takes. So mourning is our practice when there's a loss of trust. We let ourselves feel sadness that our trust is lost anger at the one who took it away, and fear that we will never find it again. We stay with these feelings for as long as they are up for us. 
Gradually, this leads to a letting go of our pain and a letting go of blaming ourselves or anyone else. And we're especially paying attention to the anger, which the dictionary defines as displeasure about injustice, how unfair this was. And I want to point out that anger has a special use in this process. It's what helps you gain distance. So we don't only use anger to express our disturbance about how unfair the whole thing is. It's also helping us maintain distance which is important when there has been a breakdown of trust. You can't just stay totally connected. So in the image I gave from the film, man on the porch, woman in the house, that's the distance. That was legitimate. The anger is appropriate because it's based on the breaking of an agreement, a hurt at the heart level. Also, an expectation has been dashed. We're also hurt at the ego level because you can go ahead and cover this up, take this one off. Um, You're also hurt at the ego level because Um, you had thought that you were so important and you suddenly realize that somebody else is getting what you have always wanted and what your partner is saying he was unable to give. So that's a terrible feeling to have. In either case, we eventually find healing for ourselves when we settle into the infidelity as a fact as opposed to a big insult and say yes to the fact of it without further protest. This attitude of unconditional yes moves us in the direction of full acceptance of what happens and puts us in the best position to deal with it. We don't condone it. We stay focused on ourselves and what's up next for us. We do all we can to take care of ourselves. All this applies to a single affair, but if the infidelities keep happening or are part of a general and ongoing rejection of intimacy, then we do not have the makings of a healthy relationship and need to work things out in therapy, especially an ending. Like being with somebody who seems physically and psychologically unable to be faithful, there's no such person you could be faithful. But some people are so caught in this style that no matter what you do, they're not going to be able to come back around and heal the break in trust. So you're making statements like this. 
I let go of my picture of who I thought you were or wanted you to be. I let go of any demands that you live up to the pictures. I move along on my own journey. And I have this in uh, italics because it's also hopeful. As long as we're demanding absolute trust or absolute trustworthiness from anyone, no hurts, no broken promises, no letdowns. If that's what we're looking for, we're backing out of the most touching vitalizing, and soul-deepening chapters of the human chronicle. As long as you're totally trying to avoid any possibility of hurt, disappointment, or betrayal, you're losing out on one of the main ways that we become people of depth and independence. That's the positive side of the experience. (laughs) Questions about this part? Everybody follow? And so the one who was hurt in this way will have to be asking for what's on our other list. Uh, You're going to show that you are making amends, you're going to show that you're making a commitment to do things differently in the future, you're going on high alert. And if it seems sincere in the other person who is responding positively because he wants the relationship to survive, then you have at least something to go on. But nothing takes the place of ongoing evidence of change, which you'll be able to see right away. I'm on 140. You may notice that your way of relating in the recent past has been uncommitted, lackluster, on again, off again, that kind of relationship. After an affair, both of you may realize you can't go back to that. that the recovery, the healing, is not going back to the way it was. The opportunity has opened for a new kind of commitment to make the relationship all it can be. Every agreement cheerfully kept. No holes barred anymore. No holdouts. Anything less will feel insincere, inadequate, and unfair. As we have been seeing when it comes to rebuilding trust, any couple coming out of an episode of infidelity has a strike against it. It takes a while for the betrayed person to trust her partner again and for the betrayer to establish a record of trustworthiness. Neither one can be expected to be enthusiastic for quite a while. Rather, you can expect to be tense and angry 
to have a low interest in one another for a while, maybe no sex for a while. And this is not the best position from which to do the work, so patience becomes part of the commitment. Okay, any questions about this part? I have my wonderful quote from Frederick Nietzsche in his book, Beyond Good and Evil. It takes such evil and painful things for the great emancipation to occur. Recently, I tried to, so I'm just reading from this one paragraph from 142. Recently, I tried to throw away a seemingly useless program from my computer. A message, a message popped up. This item can't be eliminated because it's required to make your system work effectively. So, I'm using that as a metaphor. We can trust that our psyche operates in that same way. Some events and feelings remain unappealing, seem to be useless, raggedly unsettled. And we have to trust that even though it looks that way, they make the human system work more effectively. This may explain why not every one of our psychological issues can or is meant to be fully addressed, finally processed, and completely resolved. Our assignment is only to let go of our relentless need to control our feelings and keep granting hospitality to our story with all its gaps and needs of mending and all its griefs that have no tidy ending. What a complex and enigmatic challenge it is to understand and to become fully human. So that kind of goes to this topic. You can't underestimate the power of any event that occurs in a relationship to be, shall we say, reaching into corners of yourself that needed to be jiggled so that you could finally look at them from a new perspective or see how they fit in or somehow change them. And one of the things that happens when you're with a partner is that he or she does just that. He'll be the one to um, instigate the events that push you to look at something in you that is now ready to be seen. As long as all the topic is about how he has to be in order for me to feel good, what she has to do in order for me to trust, we will never get to the depths of ourselves. 
It'll always be about the story. It won't be about the deep reality of who we are. Uh, questions that have come up about this part of our topic? What page is that on? Um, I was on um, 142 and 143, Thank you. which is the end of chapter 6. I mean, I'm sorry, the end of chapter 5. Okay, so let's go on. Can you see okay when I use the green? Let's see. Or, oh no, it's red. (laughs) Can you see okay this way? Okay, so let's go back to our overall topic. And we're going to say the trust is broken. And since the trust, if, or I should say, if the trust was in the I trust you department, which is the child's version, perfectly legitimate in early life, I trust you to feed me, change me, and hold me, and know when to do each of the three. No problem. That's how it's supposed to be. So when the trust is broken, if it was based on I trust you, then all has fallen apart. And it will feel just this way, sinking feeling in your stomach. Like, oh, so there wasn't anything here to begin with. Reminds me of that uh, statement uh, at the end of Gone with the Wind when uh, Scarlett is sitting at the table with her lover, Ashley, and his wife is dying in the other room. And... Uh, he's uh, talking about something having to do with his own fantasies. And she says, dreams, always dreams with you, never common sense. And then all this time, I've been pursuing a phantom I've been trying to get something that doesn't really exist. Then this is what shows her to be a true survivor. Her next statement. But somehow it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. She went to fact instead of blame. That's her true separation from him, finally, since he was never available to begin with. And she gets it 
It was all fantasy. It was never real to begin with. It was all in my mind, and I'm finally letting go of it. It won't feel like that if it's I trust you. It'll feel like all has fallen apart and there is nowhere to go. So the worse you feel, the more do you realize that the kind of trust that you were using was the original version of it rather than the updated version I'm using the original version of word, not the updated version. So there are many things I can't do. But if I go to the updated, I can do anything. Something like that. If the trust is broken, but you have advanced, instead of having the child's trust, you have the adult's version of trust, But wait, it was always I trust myself. To receive appreciatively your trustworthiness, to handle non-retaliatorily your untrustworthiness. I made room for both right from the beginning. I can handle both. I have that toolkit in me. Because look, it goes from I to self with trust as the link as opposed to I to you with trust as the necessary ingredient. Here it's not the necessary ingredient. It's the hoped for agreement, ingredients, always with the realization that there are times when it won't be happening. So now we see the meaning of what we originally talked about at the beginning of the day. The difference between the child trust and the adult trust. Now we're seeing how it fits in when there's a break in trust. You're finding out where you were coming from. If everything has fallen apart, you probably were still here. If it looks like, okay, this is, I'm in grief and this is another thing to handle and where do I go from here? Then you probably had moved to the most recent version. Primitive version, most recent version. It is complex because it seems like, well, what else could there be? It has to be, I trust you. And that is true. It has to be, I trust you. But only tongue in cheek. Because the givens don't permit, I trust you. Even if you were in court and said, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, you could be lying. I trust myself to be totally open to receiving all the 
trustworthy moments that we have together. And I trust myself to handle all the times when you will fail to be trustworthy. And it will mean a lot if when you are trustworthy, you are willing to take the steps that we described. I admit what I did fully, tell you the whole story with all the content, tell you everything you want to know about it, tell me what I felt in it, and at the same time, make show you that I'm sorry that I hurt you in this way, that I am willing to make amends, that I am willing to change my behavior for the better, to go on high alert and notice my um, passive ways of keeping the infidelity going, such as continuing contact, but just by email. That would be an example. And uh, admitting everything to you along the way, that's how you start to rebuild the trust. And sometimes the trust can't be rebuilt because the big ego gets in the way. Questions about this part? Uh, Yeah, if you can go to the... Okay, why don't you start and then... Um, I just have a, a question. When you have the situation of infidelity and then the marriage, it doesn't last, it ends. And the partner that cheater, um, doesn't give the other partner those details. Like They're like, oh, you know how you are, and you don't need to know that. When that person, say me, uh, moves on and now is in a new relationship, how do, I find myself sometimes grilling my partner <laughs> because it's, it's like, I guess that wound isn't healed, <clears throat> and it's almost like I'm making him pay for someone else's sins. Um, but how would you, how would I process that to eliminate that and, you know, be in the here and now and not? I guess you'd have to say something like, you'll notice that I do a lot of grilling. Well, he's already that's... noticed it. He's already noticed it. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's based on the past. And so I don't want to go there. Uh, but it would help if you gave me m- more assurances than to the average bear because of my background. Thank you. I come to you as one who has been hurt, so I will need extra reassurances. That would be a healthy thing to ask. And you're building the trust if you notice that this partner does that without complaint with patience. Thank you. The only time you don't want to ask for reassurance is when you're trying to get over a fear. So if you're trying to get over a fear, you want to tough it through 
and not get somebody to reassure you. For instance, you have a fear of, you have a phobia about snakes. And the other person says, oh, you don't have to worry, this snake is not poisonous. Um, but your fear is not based on whether they're poisonous or not. You just don't like being around them. You're trying to desensitize yourself. It doesn't help to get reassurances. It, it works better if you can desensitize yourself little by little without help. Whereas in that instance, then help is useful. See the dif- difference? Be the same as working with a trigger. Like let's say you're triggered by somebody being unfair to you. And you're triggered and you're upset because you think he was unfair. Then you find out that he wasn't unfair after all that he really did come through. So you feel a relief. But that relief doesn't help you work with the trigger. You want to go back to what causes me to get so triggered by people being unfair. Don't I get it that one of the givens of life is life is not fair? People are not always fair. Don't I get that? What happened to me in childhood that made me so sensitive to unfairness. That's where you want to go. Not, oh good, he wasn't unfair, so I'm done with that. That's not going to help you with your trigger. Everybody see the difference? So how it's almost you... as if when you win, you lose. In other words, you get the relief because he was fair after all, but that doesn't help you really work through your actual issue. Yeah. So how would you suggest um, transitioning from the child form of trust to the adult form of trust? Some suggestions for cultivating that. Oh, okay. That's a very good question. In other words, um, you'd have to say over and over again, um, you're not my mother, you're not my father. Uh, I'm here as an adult to do my own work. It's up to me to learn to trust myself. And you'd have to say this enough times to get it through your noggin that uh, it's a totally adult transaction here. And if occasionally somebody is parentally nice, you can still appreciate that and enjoy it. Only for a weekend. But uh, people will come along who are totally trustworthy. And so we're going to enjoy that. We're going to appreciate that. That's right here. I receive the trustworthiness with appreciation. But we're not going to demand it. Because that's not going to help us grow up. If the accent in life has become, how do I grow up in the best possible way? Rather than, how do I find the people who will 
take care of me so carefully that I'll never have to face the challenges of adulthood? That would be a good question to ask yourself. What am I looking for? Am I looking for how do I become an adult? Or am I looking for how can I find somebody who will make life so nice for me that I never have to go there? Go where? Go to the adult set of challenges. What is this set of challenges? First, to come to terms with whatever happened in childhood and how it still affects you. That in itself is a lifetime work. (laughs) Then, secondly, how do I act assertively but not aggressively in the world around me when I'm in direct contact with other people? Third, how do I deal with the three main challenges in life? Fear, anger, and guilt. How do I work with those three so they no longer get in the way of how I relate to others? So if I take those five things and say, this is what I put my concentration on, I want to work through my childhood stuff, become as assertive as I can be, deal with my fears, find ways to show anger in healthy, nonviolent styles while not being afraid of my or others' anger, and deal with whatever guilt or shame I have and forgive myself. When I can do those five, when I put my accent on those five, I will get here. I will get to I trust myself. If my accent is on, don't let me look at my childhood. Speak up for me so I don't have to be assertive. Don't ever let me be afraid so I never have, and so forth. If that's the style you're looking for, which some of us saw in our parents or grandparents, one part of the couple was taking care of everything, so the other one never had to confront anything. So that's how you would make the change. Yeah. Where does the idea that both partners play a role in infidelity come into all of this? Kind of like, um, is that a myth? Or where, actually, that's that's the question, yeah. Are you saying, uh, where's the, uh, how does it sometimes occur that both people were involved in the... Uh, I guess if somebody um, cheats on their partner and they say it's because I felt neglected or whatever it was because of, you know, what happens there with the person that neglected that person that cheated on them? Does that make sense? Uh, Where does the responsibility fall? How do, you know, it's not just one person? I don't know. Oh, you mean both people are somehow in on how the infidelity happens? 
Is that what you mean? I guess so. Like someone's needs are not being satisfied, and so they seek that satisfaction from something else or someone else. Well, I would put it this way. Both people are involved in the break in trust, but both people are not responsible for for it. Only the one who broke the trust is. So every time I let things slip by and gave up chances to attune to the other person's needs, ask the other person to attune to my needs, check in, how are things going for you in the relationship? Are you still satisfied here? How are th- what's happening with our sex life? How does it reflect what's going on? Every time you skip those questions, then you're involved in the person going off on his or her own to satisfy certain needs, unless it's an addiction. But you're still not responsible for what happened. But you are involved. See the distinction? Does that distinction make sense? So let's look at one final issue in this, which we haven't talked about. Because we're always being conscious of the uh, spiritual dimension of all this. So I just want to say a word about grace. And this is from my book called The Power of Grace. Grace, I know it's a religious word, but I'm trying to show that you don't have to be religious to notice the power of grace. Grace is a free gift of sudden higher consciousness or bigger courage or love than you ever thought was possible. But you notice that something kicks in inside that allows you to access a deeper level of love or courage or wisdom than you were ever capable of on your own. As in the example, I don't know where it came from, but I just suddenly realized such and such. I don't know where it came from, but I just suddenly said the right thing. I don't know where it came from, but I just had the courage to speak up I hadn't ever had that courage before. I suddenly had it. When that happens to you, spontaneous, unplanned, unexpected, 
That's called grace. Basis of the 12-step program. We admitted we were powerless. Our ego was powerless. We turned to a higher power. What is the higher power? Grace, the gift dimension of life, is what I call it. Now, you, if you can trust, so we're on our topic of trust, and this time we're going north to our spiritual trust, to trust that there's a gift dimension in life that everyone can access. Then the sky's the limit. Because, oh, I don't have to go by what this body-mind has been capable of so far. I can trust that occasionally, can't make it happen, but occasionally something's going to come through that's bigger. I'm going to love more unconditionally. I'm going to have wisdom beyond my level of knowledge. I'm going to have courage even though I'm a scaredy cat. And it's going to come seemingly out of nowhere. Nowhere, our Buddhist view of higher power. It's going to be spontaneous. Can't plan it. Can't make it happen. You can pray that it does happen, but you can't make it happen. Unexpected. Reminds me of a wonderful sentence from the famous book, Alcoholics Anonymous. We found an unex- we found an unsuspected resource within ourselves, and we gradually realized that it was the higher power. That says it all. We found an unexpected resource. Where was it in ourselves? and realized that that was the higher power, not up in the sky, right here in us and around us. So if you could trust that in your relationship there is a power of grace, you could occasionally call upon it. You could say, oh, I don't think I'm capable of doing this. I'm going to need your help. Whose help doesn't have to be the help of a person, but I'm going to have to trust that there's some type of grace working in the universe that will help me. Kind of reminds me of a little scene from the life of St. Claire of Assisi, a friend of St. Francis. She had a uh, little monastery there, all young women nuns. She's the abbess. And one night, they were attacked by a band of Muslims who were going to do God knows what to them. She turned to the Holy Spirit and she said, I am completely unable to deal with this threat 
I'm going to need your help. So, please, give me the grace to deal with this. And for some reason, miraculously, they just turned away. They walked by. They went on to do something else. They didn't harm anybody. So that feeling in her, my inadequacy is not a cause of despair. It's a push toward calling upon a power bigger than myself that wants to help me. Imagine her having that level of faith. It's so beautiful. And she did that with absolute trust. Okay, I can't do this. I can't protect these women, that's for sure. They're going to break down the door. They're going to come in and they're going to do whatever in here. I can't stop them. But the Holy Spirit can. And to have that level of trust in a relationship, say, okay, we've got a project here. It's how can two people love each other? And maybe it isn't all about how the two people will learn how to love each other from these self-help books. Maybe there's another power at work, something else that is wanting to help us so that there will be more love in the world, something that shows us how to be more loving, more wise, and more courageous. And I'm going to turn to that. May feel like turning within. May feel like turning to nature, universe, God, Holy Spirit, Buddha, Christ, whatever fits for you. But I believe occasionally going there, by occasionally I mean daily, (laughs) uh, you might find help from an unsuspected quarter. Even when we did our 10-minute meditation, I was praying to the Holy Spirit that I would say some things here today that would help you. And I think she answered my prayer. (laughs) So thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.